Well, as we study the life of Jesus on the pages of the four Gospels, we discover that one-third of the material written about Jesus focuses on the last week of his life. So those who wrote the stories of Jesus were essentially saying that the most important part of the disclosure of who he was and who he is is revealed to us in the last week of his life. We remember this morning the day known to the church as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter that begins this last week of Jesus' life that we call Holy Week. And so today we remember and we celebrate the day that Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem as a Savior and King. As Jesus rode a donkey into town, a large crowd gathered and laid palm branches in their cloaks across the road, giving Jesus the royal treatment. Up until then, he, he, he had lived in, in, in obscurity or he had lived with his teaching with a, with a relatively small group of people and now suddenly this was his public uh, declaration, his public delivery. And so this crowd celebrating Jesus will then become a crowd calling for his execution only a week later in the release of a horrible criminal instead. These hundreds, these thousands of people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The words that describe the experience of this week are a litany of emotion that represent the ups and downs of the week. And they're familiar to us. We know them well. Arrival, Hosanna. Celebration, confrontation, betrayal, denial. Trial, scourging, crucifixion, tomb. But we also know that the story does not end there. And so ultimately we will hear the most powerful, powerful sentence to describe the most profound truth ever to affect mankind. The utterance of these seven words, he is not here, he is risen. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth born as a helpless baby in a barn for animals. He lived in relative obscurity for 30 years, and then for three years, he, along with a ragtag group of 12 men, turned the world upside down. This short life literally split time in half, and no life on this earth has come close to the impact that Jesus Christ has had on humanity. Jesus' arrival back then demanded a response from the crowds. And I submit to you that his arrival demands a response from us. And that the questions that needed to be asked and answered then are as important as they are now. Who is he? What is his purpose? Why did he come? You see, Jesus came to earth to bring hope to humanity. But then, as well as now, there are people who refuse to see that truth. And so this message this morning is for all of us. But if you are here in particular, and maybe your hope is dwindling, maybe you're struggling without hope, if you don't know Jesus, then this message is particularly for you. From your Heavenly Father, I beg you, please listen to this message with an open heart. Don't leave here indecisive. 
Don't leave here indifferent to the question of who Jesus is and what, what, what difference that makes to you in your life. Jesus' arrival on the scene demands a response from each of us. And the way, that we, the way that we answer those questions, the way that we determine who he is, will genuinely affect the rest of our lives. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the truths of, of Palm Sunday, the truths of who Jesus is, who was that king who came to Jerusalem, and who is that king to you. And so at this time, we'll dismiss our kids to South Coast Kids. Again, we're so grateful for just all the helpers. We need more of them, but we're grateful for all the helpers and all the teachers for all the young people and the children, Father, have your way in their church, in their lesson, God. Let them realize how much love you have for them, the, the, the path that you have for their lives as well. Be with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm before you this morning, Lord, and we just confess our, our full dependence upon you, God. Our full need for you, our full, our full reliance on you. Father, you know the, the details of each of our lives. God, you know the, the places we struggle. You know the things that, that we're holding on to that you want us to let go of. Father, you know the things that you want to give us that, that we are reluctant sometimes to receive. And so, Father, we pray that you have your way in our lives. Father, help us. Give us the faith to be bold, to walk in your will to do what it is you'd have us do in this church and in our lives. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is The Hope of the World. And I believe that no matter who you are, no matter what your history or past, look, past looks like, no matter what difficulties you have faced or may be facing right now, that what you need more than anything else is hope. It's what the people most needed in Jerusalem when Jesus came. And he came, he came to give them that. He came to give them that which they needed most, and yet they missed it. And for many years of my life, I missed it too. And I don't want you to miss it. In fact, the whole reason why I do what I do can be summed up in John 20, verse 31, when he tells us why he wrote his whole gospel. John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that Jesus loves all of us, and, and we like to think that, that he didn't play favorites. John was part of his inner circle. So John was kind of like Jesus BFF, kind of, right? I mean, John was like, close to Jesus. And John said this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I want to paraphrase that and I want to say that the reason that I preach and teach and the reason I've answered the call of God to be a pastor is because I want more than anything you to know who Jesus is. And I don't want you to just know that in your brain. I don't want you to just believe the intellectual truth of God in the Bible, but deep in your heart, I want you to know who Jesus is with every fiber of your being. 
so that you go through this life and you don't just exist, but you flourish. So that you have a real abundant life. So you can experience the beauty and the love of God. And, and so because of that eternity-changing relationship with him, him, that God will operate through your life to make all of your relationships rich and alive and life-giving to other people. That's what motivates me. You see, I did not understand who Jesus was or why he came. And when I finally came to understand that, it turned my world upside down. And it continues to do that to this day, and I'm delighted. You see, it's often in our darkest times that God makes his presence known most clearly. He uses our suffering and our troubles to show us that he is our only source of strength. And when we are able to see this truth clearly, we will receive new hope. And so I implore you, if you're facing a great trial today, to take heart and to put yourself in the hands of God. To wait for his timing. And I promise you that he will give you a beautiful hope in his presence. Jesus, the son of a carpenter, educated in Nazareth, one who eventually gained favor with men, who was cheered and praised, the same man would be mocked and scorned and cast aside by the same ones who did the cheering. Imagine yourself in Jerusalem over those 2,000 years ago. There was a great crowd there. And that day they've come to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Josephus, the notable historian, estimated that it could have been as many as two million people involved in this great Passover feast. And so as they prepare to observe one of the most important feasts that the Jewish people celebrate, word comes that Jesus is on his way into the city. It's a rare thing for all four Gospels to record the same, amount, uh, same event in Jesus' life. Sometimes you have one or two Gospels record an event. Sometimes Jesus' uh, events in his life are recorded in three Gospel accounts, and you don't have it, and maybe John. But what happens on this day in Jerusalem is recorded by all four of the Gospel writers. We should consider what happened here to be very important. The crowd gathers as Jesus rides into the city on the colt of a donkey and they begin to wave palm branches and they begin to shout their welcome to Jesus. Now when he came riding into Jerusalem, there were all types of people in the crowds. There were people who understood who Jesus was and who came to see him. That We're going to talk about that. But many of the people in the crowd had misplaced false hope. They had misplaced false hope tied directly to their misunderstanding, tied directly to their wrong assumptions. They missed, as we often do with spiritual things, the big picture. And so it's interesting that many times we read this story as a celebration of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And that overshadows everything. That's, that's what we look at. We look at this is the celebration of him riding into Jerusalem with the palm branches and the whole, you know, the whole thing, the whole parade. But there's something more happening here. Jesus wants us to see it. And so I'm going to read to you the account in, in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. 
It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks along the road. When he, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And verse 41 says this. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It's only the second, second place in Scripture where Jesus wept. The first is in John 11.35. It's actually the shortest verse in all of Scripture and probably says the most about who God is. But here we have Jesus weeping again. Verse 43 continues. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. On that Palm Sunday, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he was aware of the conditions surrounding the people's heart. Right now, here today, Jesus is, the way, is aware of the condition of your heart. You see, Jesus knew their needs, and Jesus knows our needs better than we do. And often our expectations of Jesus are wrong because we misunderstand Jesus' purpose. I don't know how many times as a pastor I see a cycle in somebody's life where they come to church or they come to God or they begin a process because something's happening, some circumstance or situation. And so they reach out to God and God responds. And oftentimes he's, he's, you know, he's aware and he's attentive and oftentimes he will change the situation. And then they walk away. Too often the desire is for God to change the circumstances instead of God changing us in the circumstances. You see, the Jews found themselves under heavy Roman oppression. There were heavy taxes, there were restrictions placed on them. We know at that time there were numerous executions by crucifixion. Jesus knew about all those things as well. He knows about your situation and your struggles and what you're in the middle of right now. 
but he also knew their heart. The Jews were in search of somebody. And the somebody they were in search of was a king, was a conqueror, was somebody to set them free. And so people come to church, and what they want is is a God to relieve them of their struggles, is a God to meet them at their time of need. And that's okay to want that, because God wants to be our source. But when he meets us in the the midst of our trouble, and he begins to maybe work through some of those things, he's trying to, to pry to something deeper. He's trying to get us to see something bigger than our immediate circumstance. He's trying to get us to recognize our condition, our fatal condition. You see, there were people there that had seen the mighty works of this man, Jesus. They were witnesses to him restoring sight to the blind. They saw the evidence of him healing the lame. They saw him feed the multitude with a little boy's lunch, with leftovers to spare. They heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. They listened to him teach with authority, So surely with power and authority like that, this Jesus without a doubt would be the one who would set them free. This Jesus without a doubt is the one who's going to restore your relationship or renew your finances or give you your job back. And so in less than a week, these same people who were cheering for Jesus would be calling for his crucifixion because they misunderstood. And Jesus knew And it caused them to weep. Jesus was not the king they expected. They wanted a conquering king, but Jesus didn't gather troops. He didn't lead a revolt. He didn't do what they expected. Instead, he drove the money changers out of the temple. He paid tribute to Caesar. He taught that giving out of poverty is worth more than giving out of abundance. He said that in order to be great, you must become a servant. Jesus did everything the people didn't want, and so the cheering stopped. Because they didn't recognize who Jesus really was, why he really came, they didn't see the symbol that this king came in peace, not riding on on a stallion, on 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 a horse that was symbolic of a king, of a powerful king in wartime, but on a donkey that he came in peace. Their hope was tied to their expectations rather than their faith. Is your hope tied to your expectation or is your hope tied to your faith? It's a big question. It's a deep question. You see, hope, the, the worldly definition of hope is, is a wish. And usually the, 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 the power of the hope is in the strength of the person's desire, how hopeful you are. But biblical hope is different. You see, biblical hope is tied to the confident expectation of what God has promised. It's a hope in his strength and in his faithfulness. It's a hope in his character. It's resting in the the knowledge that his ways are better than our ways. And that whatever he does, that we can trust that he's in control. There are people too often who refuse to believe or simply do not understand why Jesus came. It breaks my heart 
You know, if we had every, every person who ever began, you know, coming to South Coast Church and, you know, people move on or, you know, they go to different church. I'm not talking about that. But if we ever had anybody who began a journey of faith, there'd be thousands of people. But there have been so many people that have been in the midst of, of trial or sickness or divorce or struggle and began walking with God and somewhere along the line, God didn't, he wasn't the king they expected. He wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. Maybe they were feeling a little uncomfortable at the, at the areas they were bringing, he was bringing to their attention and so they walked away. Because difficulty really does two things. Either we draw close to God or we run away from him trying to escape ourselves ultimately. In fact, even when Jesus gave us our reason for existing as the church, there were those who refused to believe. You know, as I was studying this, there's so many areas in Scripture where we're familiar with the, with the, with the focal point of the Scripture, and then it's like there's these people in the background that we overlook. And I'm going to show you what I mean. The Great Commission, right? Where we get our, our mission statement from. Matthew 28, verse 16, then the, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw them, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Just three little words. It says a lot, though. I mean, this is the Great Commission. This is when Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to tell all of us you know, what we ought to do now. With the fact that he's, that he's risen, that he's proved he was who he says who he was. You think, this is it. Now this is, you know, I want to be there. I want to get my marching orders. And there were people there and they were worshiping him. But even in the midst of that, you see those three words, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's a commission. It's something he's ordered us to do. And in that, there's the promise that he's going to be with us. And so who are you? in that group are you those who came and worshiped him or are you a the but some doubted and that doesn't mean we have perfect faith and we don't ever have doubts but it means where do we remain where do we stand with all this do we stay in the some doubted camp that doesn't do anything or do we move forward to the go and make disciples we'll see it again if we continue and read which we probably become one of the most famous passages of scripture because it's a clear presentation of the gospel, and it's a scripture that even many non-believers know of. And so I'm talking about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his, own, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There it is. Clear presentation of the gospel, of the purpose the hope of the world. And yet, again, if we continue, we see those who deny Christ. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then verse 19 says this, this is the judgment, this is the situation, this is the scenario, this is what we're dealt with. That light has come into the world. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. 
How many people know that by heart? We know that for God so loved the world. But how many people know that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness? I mean, again and again through Scripture, it's the same thing. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There are people that tell you all the time, you believe that you're a Christian? You guys are fools. You guys are nuts. You know, when I was living out there and I was nuts, nobody thought I was crazy. You know, I could tell you stories of stuff I do and everybody would agree I was crazy. Nobody thought I was crazy. Now I love Jesus. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. I'll be crazy for Jesus. That's okay. People said one time to me, you know, aren't you afraid of ever looking silly? You know, you go up there and you go to preach. I said, I've looked silly most of my life for the devil. I'll look silly for Jesus for a little bit. That's okay. You see, Christmas is nice, right? We celebrate Christmas. Jesus was born. But that doesn't really make him unique. In fact, each of us in this room were born, right? How many of us are really alive, though? How many of us are born again? You see, Matthew 28, 6, he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. These words in verse 6 that are the culmination and fulfillment of the mission of the Messiah. All of the Old Testament pointed and prepared God's people for the ultimate sacrifice, for the Lamb of God, who for once and for all would save the people from their sins. You see, it's about Easter. Easter is everything. He is not here. He is risen. Those words tell us so much. And the scripture continues there, and it says, as he said. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. In other words, oh no, Jesus, he's not in the grave. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. When he said the temple would be raised in three days. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. What he claimed he would do, he, would, he did. Who he claimed he was, he was. And that's why, why Paul talks about the resurrection being the most important in all of Christianity. It's, it's the thing that everything hinges upon. It's the single most significant event. Everything else gets thrown out if Jesus is still in the grave. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. The Bible says that. Paul says that. Very, very plain, very simple. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. It's not just helpful. It's not just good teaching. It's, it, there's nothing useless. It's garbage. In fact, he says you're, you're to be pitied. People should feel bad for you if Christ is still in the grave. It's a, it's a powerful thing to say, but it's true. He is not dead. He is alive. And so what do we do in response to that truth? If we really understand it, if we really believe it, that should fill us with great joy. That should fill us with such a great hope that we share that hope with others. Verse 7 tells us, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See as I have told you. And so verse 8 says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. 
For too many in Jerusalem that day, and for too many who fill churches on Sundays, their hope is not tied to Christ. Their hope is tied to their expectation of what they think Christ can do for them. Their hope and their faith are tied to their perceived best outcome. Now, God wants the best outcome too, but he wants the real best outcome. Your best outcome and my best outcome is, is just not, not even close. But we can't see that. If we, if we could only see the life God has for us compared to the life we'd settle for, if we, if we could only see a glimpse of that life. Guys, you know, come to the Teen Challenge all the time and, and, you know, they think that God's plan is just to get them out of their addiction or, you know, and it applies here. You know, you think God's plan is just to get you through your struggle. And he'll do that because he loves you often. He'll do that. But man, the plan he has for you is so much bigger than to get you through one little struggle. It's so much bigger than to just save your marriage or to get you off of drugs or to get you a new job. He wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give you a new life. He wants people to look at you and see him. Can you imagine? And when he looks at you, your past doesn't get in his way. He doesn't look at you and say, well, you know, I'd like to use you. I'd like you to be my ambassador, but you're not good enough. No, he looks at you and says, I love you so much. And through me, you can be the best ambassador there is. In fact, you can do things I can't even do. The Bible says that. Why? Because Jesus was in one place at one time. And now he works through all of us. That's what it means when it says we'll do greater things. But we got to believe that. We can't just come to church on a Sunday and ask God for the little, you know, hey, help me with, you know, my test scores or help me with my little, and that's all we expect. Expect more, but be willing to go deeper. Be willing to let him find those areas of your heart that you don't want to give him. You know, the the saddest story in the Bible to me is the rich young ruler. I always kind of seem to fall back to it. It's not about the finance. It's about the one thing you won't give God. It's about that one area where you go, well, I'm going to worship you in all these other areas, God, but in this one area, I don't trust you. That right there, that's your God. That's your idol. And that's the thing that for your whole life will, will, will rob you of your intimacy with Jesus. And your hope will always be tied to that thing. And you've heard me say again and again and again that sin is a cheap substitute for something better that God has for you. If we could only see a glimpse of what he sees for us. You see, there are church people who still think hope is is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for my best. And yet the biblical understanding of hope is always tied to faith. In fact, apart from Christ, there is no hope. There is no hope at all. There's none. Faith in anything other than Christ is useless. But again, hope is tied to expectations rather than faith. Remember that. Ask yourself that question. What is my hope tied to? Do you have the right expectation of God? Do you really understand his purposes for your life? 
Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Psalm 39, 7, and now, O Lord, for what, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Ephesians 2.12, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 1 Peter 1.21, through him you believed in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. I was listening to a a sermon by Tim Keller and he said this. He said, we have a tendency to come to God and we tell him he's our king. And then we immediately ask him for something. And he said, sometimes it's, it's this perceived need or this want. And the reality is that whatever that extra thing is that we think we need, in addition to Jesus, that's really our king. Now he's not saying don't ask God for things. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if it's always about that that thing that you think will do it, instead of the relationship with God, which we're going to see in a minute. If it's always about the relationship or the car or the job, then the object of our affection is not him. He's not our king. We're our own king. You see, in John's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he tells of those who came because they heard of Jesus' miracles. And they came basically because they wanted their own miracle. This is the reason they came in John 12, verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard he performed the sign, went out to meet him. They were looking for a miracle. Now it's okay to come to Jesus looking for a miracle. Please don't understand. Don't misunderstand me. But know when you come to Jesus that ultimately the thing of most value he has to give you, and sometimes he will give you the healing or the deliverance or whatever it is, is him, is himself. The ultimate answer to every prayer is the presence of God in your life. When people say, does God answer prayers? Yeah, he always does. He answered prayers a long time ago when he sent Jesus to die in our place so that we would overcome sin and have eternal life. But listen to me, listen to me. Often our wants and desires blur our vision to our real needs. Often our wants and desires blur our vision to our real needs. It's amazing when things go our way, when God does what we want, when Jesus rises to our cause, it's easy to cheer. Everybody puts the palm branches on the ground. But when things don't go our way, when it doesn't make sense to us, then do we move to cursing God? You see, the people wanted to be delivered from oppression. They wanted to be delivered from a bad situation. And Jesus wept because he said, if you only knew that I wanted to deliver you from a, a I wanted to deliver you from an eternal oppression. I wanted to do more than just remove you from a difficult circumstance but there was one more group that day John 12 verse 20 and 21 says now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast 
They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. Oh, that we would all say that. That we would come into his presence simply to glorify and honor him. What difference would it make in our lives and in our prayers if ultimately we just said, Jesus, be present. I want more of you. I'm going through something. Be here now with me. You can say, deliver me from, that's biblical, right? We said that was Jesus' prayer. Take this cup from me, but if not, y'all will be done. And we just do the first half. We just say, take this cup from me. Change my circumstance. And we're not so go at the yo will be done part. But the intimacy is in the yo will be done part. The intimacy and the trust comes when we say, we're gonna, um, it's okay. If you're just with me, then I can get through it. You see, I want to worship Jesus. I want to read about him. I want to love him. I want to know him. I want to pray to him. I want to gather in his name. I want to allow him to be glorified. I want to allow him to build his church. I want to be with his people. I want to be used of him. I want to please him. I want to live a life where he's pleased by me. For when we see Jesus and we worship his holy name, God is glorified. And when we recognize that Jesus represents the love that God has for us, a love that would send him to the cross to die in our place, this changes us. When we come to the realization that God gave his only son to die for you and me, that we might not perish but have everlasting life, that should change our perspective. Forget about our circumstances. God sets us free from our condition. God takes dead things and makes them alive. He brings us into the light. He's making us new. Forget about a king who's freeing people from Roman rule. This king came to set them free from sin and death. But they missed it and Jesus wept. So my question to you is, are you going to miss it? We should bow down and surrender our whole beings to God. We should begin and commit together to obey his will, to honor and praise him for all he has done and is doing. The people in the crowd that day were shouting something that was far more significant than they realized. Hosanna, they shouted, Hosanna. In Hebrew, this word means he who saves. And so they're there and they're welcoming this king and they're saying this word and they don't even realize the significance of it. He who saves. This was not a king that would reign over Israel. This king was far more important and far more powerful than any king on earth. They were singing praises to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. As the worship team comes up, Hebrews 6.29 says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Where is your hope? Who is your hope in? If you could stand with me. And as we close, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that you take a minute and just ask God to, to speak to you, to show you areas in your life where
your hope is, is tied more, your focus is tied more to, to something you need. It could be a good thing, could be you know, relief in some area, could be a healing, could be a new job, could be a relationship restored. And, and those things are, are not bad things, those things are good things, but your focus has just constantly been on that thing and you've taken your eyes off Jesus. Father, we come and our hope is only in you. Increase our faith. Give us a hunger and thirst for your word. Father, we say all the time, we don't, we don't want to play church. We don't want to just pretend to do religious stuff. We're here because we're a bunch of broken people who desperately love Jesus. Who have been changed for all of eternity by the love of God. And who want others to know that same hope that we have, the only hope there is. And so search our hearts. Bring to our attention those areas where we, where we lack trust, where we, we've worshipped other things. And renew our hope in you. Father, South Coast Church, as we, as we look for a space and as we make decisions, as we try to, to, to determine what it is you'd have us do and, and where it is you'd have us be and how it is you'd have us be, God, help it always be about us serving you, us doing what you'd have us do. And so we pray for continued unity. We thank you for your just abundant provision for the way you continue to bless and grow this community. Because at the heart of it, we're a community of people who just want to worship Jesus. So Father, have your way in this place. Have your way in our lives. In Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.